Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. I'm joined today by Linda Gasparello, the co-host, and we are here to celebrate Black History Month. And no better person to do it with than Adam Clayton Powell III, who comes from a distinguished family of civil rights workers, but also a very accomplished people. Adam, welcome to the broadcast. You are quite well known in your own right, but your father was a towering figure in Washington, really from the end of the Second World War up to the 1970s. Um, Adam Clayton Powell was a, a figure to conjure with. He annoyed the Democrats, and he was a Democrat, but he did a lot of very powerful things. You also, as I recall, come from a long line of preachers. Somehow you're not a politician, you're not a preacher, but you have been a very successful journalist, a successful academic, and tell us what you do now at the University of Southern California. Well, I lead a 50-state election cybersecurity initiative. We are actually working with each and every one of the 50 states. We've been told by the U.S. government that our team is the only team, aside from the federal government, that is working with each one of the 50 states to try to make certain that elections are safe and secure which is uh, quite, a, uh, quite a task here in the United States where we have more than 8,000 election districts with uh, different rules, different days they vote, different methods of voting, and uh, most of them are staffed by part-time volunteers. So that's quite a challenge. Would you tell us something about this illustrious family? It's not only was your father very famous, you, your grandfather was quite famous. You come from, I understand, a long line of freed slaves. They were not... Uh, uh, in most of the, the time of history of slavery, historic time of slavery, enslaved themselves. And your mother was a very famous entertainer and singer. Tell us all about these fabulous people, these charmed lives, if you will. Well, I'll start with my grandfather, Adam Clayton Powell Sr., who um, it, it didn't have much of a charmed life at first. He was born in 1865, just as the Civil War ended. Um, he uh, uh, grew up uh, in Virginia, moved to West Virginia, where he became a self-proclaimed hellraiser. Um, he uh, uh, was a, a coal miner. Uh, he helped organize mine workers in Ohio, uh, and uh, led uh, what he would uh, what he used to say was a very rowdy life. And then one day, a uh, an evangelical preacher came to town. Uh, this was in a coal mining town in Ohio. And he uh, went, saw the preacher, and it changed his life. He decided to turn his life around. Uh, he uh, moved back to the East Coast. Uh, he uh, it, uh, was a night watchman at a boys' school on the site of uh, what years later became the museum. Uh, and he uh, uh, one night went up uh, D Street to, uh, and he saw a young woman, a uh, young girl under a lamppost uh, and it was snowing and he went up to her and asked uh, uh, what uh, why are you out here in the snow at uh, midnight and she said my family has turned me out and said i can't come back unless i have money and so uh, he gave her all the money in his uh, pockets went back uh, to the school resigned and uh, decided to become a minister uh, and he uh, was the minister of a church in new haven and uh, where my father was born and then um, he and the family moved to New York City to the Abyssinian Baptist Church, uh, which at that time was on 40th Street, across the street from the Metropolitan Opera House. Uh, and uh, my grandfather built, moved the church to Harlem. 
and built it into the largest Protestant congregation in the United States. Uh, my father came along and uh, uh, became uh, the minister succeeding my grandfather, continued as uh, the largest Protestant congregation in the U.S. My father was a little more uh, interested in politics. He ran for city council and won. Um, he uh, was supposed to, uh, he helped create the first black congressional district uh, in New York, uh, New York State in Harlem. Uh, and he went to a rally at Madison Square Garden where everybody thought he was going to introduce A. Philip Randall, who would be the candidate for Congress in the new district. And instead, in his introduction, he somehow forgot to introduce uh, A. Philip, and instead he announced himself that he was going to be a candidate. <laughs> and uh, he ran on all political parties. He ran on the Democratic, Republican, uh, all, the, all the political parties, and won all the primaries. So uh, um, uh, someone said that instead of... Uh, but separate but less under uh, segregation that Powell wanted separate but more. Now, um, I regret that I never met him, but I knew a lot of newspaper men who knew him, and they were bowled over by him. He was handsome, he was charming, he was quite swashbuckling, uh, and of course this appealed to newspaper men, and he always caught a good press, even in the time when he was, uh, when they were trying not to seat him in Congress because of various uh, uh, issues that had arisen, not the least of which is a lot of members of the Democratic Party to which he had nominally belonged most of his career, am I right? I hope so, uh, uh, were offended by the swashbuckling, the larger than life, and possibly some irregularities with money. And the, Democrat, the Democratic Party was also quite offended that in 1956 he endorsed Eisenhower because uh, uh, Adlai Stevenson had, uh, uh, well, the Democrats in those days controlled uh, a lot of the Southern states. And so the Southern governors and senators were segregationists. And uh, my father said that uh, Stevenson was making deals with the segregationists that he could not support and that Eisenhower was more in favor of civil rights. Well, of course, this infuriated uh, the Democratic Party as he was going around the country campaigning for the Republican candidate. But, uh, and they tried to uh, oust him in the primary in 1958. And uh, I, I happened to be uh, overseas uh, with my mother when the primary was held in New York. And he sent a telegram. In those days, you could barely get a transatlantic phone call. He sent a telegram. And, and the entire message was, the people won four to one. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. What was he like as a father? He was, of course, larger than life, but uh, at home and in the family, he took great pains, and, he and, his, and my mother took great pains to be mom and dad, which sounds incredible, but uh, he would, both of them, uh, from wherever they were in the country, they would uh, fly home or drive or take the train, whatever, um, so that uh, on Friday night, so that Saturday morning, uh, when I uh, woke up, they would be there. And the three of us would have Saturday and Sunday together. Of course, Sunday we'd be at the church and then uh, have the things on the other. But Saturday was our day. And um, uh, the, uh, that ranged from uh, going to see uh, uh, Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman at the local theater. <laughs> Um, preceded by lots of cartoons. And uh, my mother, if I recall, had, a, had a, an ice pack that she had on her head. <laughs> she was not quite dealing with Abbott and Costello very well, having probably been up almost all night uh, the night before. 
but uh, they would uh, get out in the street, um, unlike actually some of the other parents in the neighborhood. I think they may have been unique in this way. They would actually get out in the street with us kids and play touch football, including my mother, who was the only non-guy on the street uh, playing the game. And so, of course, they would all go after her, even if she didn't have the ball. And uh, she was quite famous in her own right as an entertainer, as a singer. And we have a wonderful photograph. Tell us what's in this photograph. It's 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 really a star-studded picture taken by yourself as a young man with a new camera. Yes, it was my 12th birthday, and uh, my parents had given me a new uh, camera. And so uh, I asked my mother, who was uh, just hanging out on the beach with some of her friends, to let's get together. and. Uh, so you'll see in the picture, that's Lena Horne, uh, uh, Dizzy Gillespie and his wife, uh, uh, Annie Ross on the uh, left, and uh, uh, my mother and uh, uh, Dizzy's wife and uh, my mother's hairdresser. And it's just a bunch of, uh, bunch of people hanging out uh, on the beach. Adam, tell me about your mother, Hazel Scott, who was a famous entertainer in her own right. Yes, uh, and her career began shortly after she and her mother arrived in the United States. Uh, my mother was uh, four years old when they arrived in uh, New York. And uh, uh, shortly after arriving, they, they uh, moved to Harlem. They uh, uh, had um, very little money, but they did have a piano. Her mother was a, a musician. Uh, and uh, because her hands weren't, her mother's hands weren't large enough to play some of the larger chords on the piano, she wound up giving up the piano and playing the saxophone. So they had a piano. And uh, one day, uh, uh, my mother and, uh, and my grandmother tell the same story. Uh, uh, they heard, uh, my grandmother heard somebody playing the piano, picking out a tune on the piano. And she said, who is here? There's only, only the little girl is here. And she went in and saw my mother was picking out tunes on the piano. Well, uh, she, she was a child prodigy. Uh, she uh, had a, uh, uh, she toured with the bands. She uh, had a network radio show as a teenager. Uh, she was the highest paid African-American entertainer in Hollywood in the 1940s in movies. Uh, and uh, she was the first black man or woman, we think, to host um, uh, her or his uh, own network TV series uh, in 1950. And uh, I was uh, live across the country. Uh, uh, I would imagine that many TV stations in some parts of the country weren't happy carrying it, or maybe they didn't carry it. But uh, it did quite well in the uh, in the audience ratings, um, uh, right up until uh, she was accused of being a communist sympathizer. Uh, this was the 1950s, and Senator Joseph McCarthy was uh, accusing people of being communist or communist sympathizers and uh, ending a lot of people's careers. In my mother's case, uh, one of the charges against her was that she had, um, uh, she had entertained Soviet troops during World War II. And she said, well, that's true. Um, they were our allies. And so there were some Soviet troops in the audience when I was entertaining American and British troops during World War II. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, the, the, he was charged with being a communist. And she insisted on appearing before the House on American Activities Committee to uh, refute the charges. And uh, uh, and my my father, I remember the three of us are having dinner, 
And my father said, you can never win with those people. Why are you doing this? So you, you should uh, keep quiet. And she said, no, no, I'm not going to keep quiet. I'm going to go and tell them that they are the un-American people. And he said, oh. <laughs> well, she did appear at the House Un-American Activities Committee, read a statement. Uh, and uh, while her television show audience uh, stayed, uh, stayed uh, high, the sponsors became nervous and uh, pulled out. So the TV show was canceled. She continued to tour around the country playing both classical and jazz music. Uh, uh, and uh, then in 1954, uh, in, in 1950, 51, 52, 53, and 54, the three of us had uh, gone to Europe each summer. My mother would play concerts in London and Paris and uh, other venues. My father would uh, uh, have uh, surprise inspections of military bases. I, I went with him on a few of those. You can imagine the rather startled uh, uh, people at the guard uh, posts when he pulled up and said, hello, um, um, my name is uh, Congressman Adam Clayton Powell and I'd like to uh, be admitted to your military base so I could do an inspection. And the uh, commanding officer, the times I was with him, the commanding officer, the general once, the colonel another time, came running out and said, oh, Congressman, uh, we'll, uh, we'll have a, a reception for you in the officer's club. And he said, yes, thank you very much. I'll get there a little bit, but first I'd like to go to the motor pool. And uh, uh, if you know anything about uh, uh, the U.S. Army, the motor pool, uh, particularly in the 1950s and in World War II, was almost always entirely black NCOs and enlisted men, and uh, uh, who would be most of whom, at least the times I went with them, were quite um, in awe and not didn't quite know what to say. And uh, what he would do is he reached into his pocket and pulled out a deck of cards. He said, uh, "Let's play some cards." And uh, as he played with uh, the uh, uh, GIs, he said, how are things uh, going here? Uh, everything going all right here? Um, but it wasn't just with GIs. Uh, I remember crossing uh, the first time we went to Europe was on the Queen Mary and uh, Winston Churchill was on, on, uh, on board as well. And uh, my father insisted on going down to the engine room to play cards with the guys down in the engine room and asked them how things were going. <laughs> but he was there, I went down with him. Uh, uh, he was there in his in his uh, tuxedo and he just threw off his jacket and he said, hey, let's play some cards. <laughs> I am reminded of the fact that it was your father while he was in Congress that got the State Department to send musicians abroad, jazz musicians. Uh, tell, tell that story. Yes, he, uh, this was something which uh, followed Eisenhower's uh, re-election as president. And my father had the idea that uh, we should send, the United States should send jazz musicians as ambassadors uh, to other countries, especially countries where the United States wasn't terribly popular. And his first choice uh, as an ambassador was Dizzy Gillespie, uh, his good friend, and my mother's good friend, and my uncle, um, and uh, so Dizzy tells the story that, that my father invited him to come to his office in Washington and didn't say why. Then the next thing uh, I know, uh, Dizzy said that um, uh, your dad and I are going outside uh, and there's a group of news uh, newspaper people and then television cameras. And, uh, and uh, my father announced that he was uh, hoping that uh, President Eisenhower and the State Department would start this jazz ambassadors program, uh, starting with his good friend, his arm around him, Dizzy Gillespie. And um, uh, even though there were some skeptics in the State Department, uh, they uh, did 
institute the program, and it was a huge success. In fact, uh, there was one story, one country, Greece, which at the time was, uh, uh, I think the Communist Party was the largest single party in Greece at, at the time, in the 1950s. And uh, they were hanging President Eisenhower in effigy down the street. And uh, then the crowd turned and they started toward Dizzy and the, and the band. Oh, and by the way, the uh, music director of the band was a guy in his 20s, a new guy named Quincy Jones. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so uh, the, the crowd is coming toward the band. And Dizzy said, what are they going to do to us? What are they going to do to us? And what the crowd did is they put them on their shoulders and they marched down the street with the band, the musicians on their shoulders, chanting, Dizzy, Dizzy, Dizzy. <laughs> Let's go back, Adam, to your father's uh, early career at the Abyssinian Church in, in Harlem and the 1930s and the Depression. Talk about how he was able to press for change uh, among African-Americans and, and how pressing for change there led him on to his first election to Congress in 1945 and his activism there. Well, he was very much a, uh, uh, as a politician, he was very much a child of the Depression. Um, uh, the, uh, my grandfather and um, his family uh, were uh, quite well off. Um, and in fact, uh, gave my father as a graduation president a, a tour of Europe. Uh, then he came back and uh, times turned very bleak very quickly. And he decided to open a soup kitchen downstairs in the then new uh, Abyssinia Church in Harlem. Um, and he uh, did community outreach programs. Um, people would come, even in my memory, in the late 1940s and early 50s, people would come to the church with no money, or maybe they would have a nickel or a dime uh, that they used to buy a subway token to get to the Abyssinia Church. Uh, and maybe they had just arrived from the South on the uh, on the, on the Pennsylvania Railroad, uh, but they knew that if they went to the Abyssinia Church, that Adam Clayton Powell could get them a job and a place to stay. And that became my father's reputation. Now, of course, uh, each time he did this, he would say, now, I'm going to see you in church on Sunday, right? <laughs> uh, so that uh, created uh, one political base. Another was he led demonstrations around Harlem. Now, this is New York City. This is not Mississippi, New York City, Harlem, where the new black uh, Mecca, but there were lots of places in Harlem where black people could not work, only whites could work, including the biggest department store on 125th Street. Uh, there were restaurants up and down 125th Street, shops 120, up and down 125th Street, right through the middle of Harlem, which would not hire black workers. So my father led a river to river protest uh, with the slogan, don't shop where you can't work, don't buy where you can't work. Right. And uh, one by one, the stores uh, and uh, restaurants uh, all uh, capitulated and began hiring uh, 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 people who lived in the neighborhood to work in the, in the stores. And uh, that was a huge uh, uh, boost for him. That um, he ran for city council and won. Uh, and then he took on the Fifth Avenue Coach Company, which operated the New York City bus system. And they too, even though buses ran through Harlem, they too would not hire black bus drivers. And uh, so 
Well, this sounds uh, pretty radical today, and it was pretty radical then. They simply formed blockades and wouldn't let the buses drive through Harlem. And finally, the Fifth Avenue Coach Company uh, um, uh, agreed to integrate the, the driver's staffs. And um, we, we have a, um, a, my brother and I produced a, a Paramount uh, movie about uh, uh, our father. And we had a story which we couldn't quite pin down but the line was too good to to uh, uh, not to use. The uh, longtime head of the Transport Workers Union in New York I was reported to have said to, uh, to my father that uh, he wished that uh, my father had uh, come to the union and joined the union staff and worked for him. And my father responded, if I had joined your union staff, you'd be working for me. <laughs> and then later on in Congress, I mean, there were just so many things that you can attach the name Adam Clayton Powell Jr. to. I mean, you had the Powell Amendment. Talk about what the Powell Amendment was. He would attach an amendment to many pieces of legislation going through Congress. Uh, and the Powell Amendment was quite simple. No federal funds could be dispersed to any institution that discriminated. Um, and he kept attaching it. And, and people would say, Adam, don't do that. You know, the Southerners can't support that. They'll vote it down. Uh, and some good legislation might uh, be lost. One night, and here's a, a story that uh, historians, as far as I know, have not uh, known. One night, my father and I were in Puerto Rico on vacation. And uh, we had mosquito nets up. And at some, some point I heard from his you know, bed for the mosquito nut, I've got it, I've got it. I said, what? He said, I've got how I'm gonna pass the Powell Amendment. I said, oh, come on, you'd never get those people to vote for your, your Powell Amendment. He said, no, no, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna stop calling it the Powell Amendment. And it became title, I think it was title five first and, and then became title nine and it became federal legislation. And uh, uh, it's uh, very much in the news now. Publicity coming up about your mother and about your father. I think PBS is doing a program on your mother, a whole hour American artist program. And uh, this is a year when the Powells are in the, the headlights, as it were. It, it is remarkable that uh, just before COVID shut things down in March of 2020, suddenly my mother was discovered again. And I think it's because um, clips of her are on YouTube. And people see these clips from the 1940s where she's playing two pianos at once uh, and uh, doing other uh, production numbers in these MGM and other musicals that, uh, uh, where, where she was a star. Adam, just state her name again so that people I'm sorry. can go to the computers and look this up. I'm going to do it. Yes, Hazel Scott, Just uh, uh, if you just search on Hazel Scott, um, two pianos, That'll bring up the YouTube uh, clip, which um, I get emailed all the time for people saying, have you seen this? Well, of course I've seen it. <laughs> it's from 1943, I think, uh, where she's playing two pianos in a, a production number and spinning around on the, on the stool as she's doing it. Um, but uh, uh, she, um, uh, uh, she is the subject of a PBS American Masters documentary which I believe is now scheduled for fall. It, um, um, and she is the uh, subject of a new ballet created by Dance Theater of Harlem, which will premiere in New York on April 19th. 
um, and uh, it's played here in Washington already, but uh, it'll premiere in New York uh, in April. And uh, it's it's really quite something. And uh, I have a small role as myself. It was very hard to get size 14 ballet slippers. Tell us about your journalistic career and how it was that you became a journalist, not a politician, not a preacher, and for that matter, not a pianist. Uh, that's true. I, I, I played the piano very badly, so that would be not be a good idea as a profession. Um, I was a uh, uh, between my freshman and sophomore years as a uh, undergraduate. I um, quite by accident wound up um, at a, with a summer internship at CBS News in New York. I was actually visiting them to observe, and uh, they needed somebody right away, just like in a movie. Um, and I called uh, my parents to tell them that I had a new, uh, I had a summer job. My first, I called my father and I said, I'm, uh, I have a summer job. Yeah, where? I said, I'm at CBS News uh, in New York. Pause, pause, hello, dad, hello. <laughs> and he said, you're not going to tell them what goes on, are you? <laughs> and, and I said, oh, if I did, they probably wouldn't believe it. Um, but then I called my mother and she burst out laughing. I said, what's so funny? And she said, well, you know how people are always saying, are you going to be a politician like your father? Or are you going to be a, an entertainer like your mother? And in TV news, you found a way of doing both. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So I, I worked uh, uh, three summers at CBS News, and then uh, it, it after afterward, they, they knew me. I worked a total of 16 years at CBS uh, stations in New York and at CBS News, uh, working with uh, um, Walter Cronkite. In fact, I started writing for Walter Cronkite in 1966 as an undergraduate um, when the president of CBS News came to the newsroom and said, you're the kid who goes to MIT, right? And I said, oh, yes, Mr. Sloan. And he said, um, you must know all about the space program. I said, well, I'm not an aero and astro major, but I know some. I actually was anchoring some coverage uh, for the MIT radio station. And he said, good enough. Um, Walter needs another writer. Catch the next flight to Florida. Oh. <laughs> and uh, it was sufficiently uh, terrifying that I uh, spent all night uh, cramming with uh, the uh, the, uh, the reference books that NASA and uh, Grumman and the other uh, contractors uh, had uh, sent to news organizations. And uh, by the time I arrived at uh, the launch complex the next day, uh, at Cronkite, who was uh, somewhat skeptical of this new kid, he said, okay, give me 20 seconds on gimbal law. <laughs> you know what that is, right? I said, well, of course I know what it is. MIT, uh, uh, MIT designs and builds the guidance system for the Apollo spacecraft and for many others. So of course I know what gimbal lock is. I just don't know if I can say anything about it in 20 seconds. He said, well, all right then, 25. Uh, I just didn't realize that you could actually tell a story. And we had a lot of time by American standards. We had two minutes to tell a story. <laughs> Think Cronkite in 25 seconds and speed through the rest of your career. We're nearly out of time. I uh, went uh, from CBS to um, uh, ABC News, helped start a 24-hour uh, television uh, uh, cable network, uh, satellite news channels, uh, did work in uh, Africa, um, uh, then came uh, uh, perhaps my craziest job ever, uh, 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 being executive producer at Quincy Jones Entertainment, uh, which was... Uh, uh, quite a wild time. And then, uh, let's see, what have I left out? Um, uh, Freedom Forum, uh, where I did programs about the internet for uh, eight years all over the world. Um, and uh, now, uh, University of uh, Southern California, I uh, helped start a uh, 
an African-American, uh, uh, well, actually, uh, minority television station, full-power PBS station in San Francisco. Um, and then after being the inaugural general manager there, uh, came to Washington, and I was uh, general manager of Howard University's television station. Everybody will be back in a week, and we will have Adam Clayton Powell III back, one of the most exciting guests we've been able to attract to the program. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.